Welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. In this episode, we've got Terence Ting. And I know that Terence has been around in esports for a long time, but I didn't know exactly how long. He's got a very wide-ranging history going very deep and further back in the industry than I do. But the reason I brought him on really is to learn a lot more about Southeast Asian esports from the ground. Southeast Asia is a compilation of so many countries, but lumped in together as one industry. I learned from him about what's growing, about mobile, esports versus PC, and what his focus is at the moment going forward after his capital raise. Enjoy. Thanks so much for being a listener of this podcast. We've created it really to help increase information sharing and understanding of the esports market. If you'd like to help us out, feel free to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you do and make sure to share this with your friends. Hopefully we've been able to provide some fantastic information to you and a bit of a learning experience over this period of time, whether you're looking to skill up, enter the industry, or you're just looking to monitor to see how things are going. If you'd like to put yourself forward as a guest, suggest any others or ask any questions feel free to connect with us at bigesports.gg or on any of the social media platforms at bigesports underscore gg. Terence, Team Flash, welcome, mate. Welcome. Hey, everyone. Good morning. It's uh, 9 a.m. in Vietnam, but yeah, really, really pleased to be on this podcast today with Chris. Um, I'll just dive straight in. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the founder and CEO of Team Flash. I started this mm-hmm. company uh, two years ago, but my history in esports dates back to over 13 years. So I started back in Singapore uh, with the Dota community. That was Dota One, really, really long time ago. And so I had, this, yeah, so much memories on that. Oh my God, <laughs> spent so much time on that Warcraft Three mod. But a couple of years later, two thousand and eight, I made, I joined one of the top professional gaming teams in the world. Uh, at the time, it was known as uh, MYM, Media Magus. So oh, it was really cool right. team. Yeah, a lot of the old, older generation of esports people probably would have heard about that team. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was working for them uh, as an esports journalist. So I was really big on content creation, writing articles on the team, uh, you know, and that really shaped my experience and perspective on esports going forward for the next decade. Because what I wanted to do was work with a professional team, uh, empower the esports athletes, especially in my region. So like, I always had that vision to work in Singapore and then going into the Southeast Asia region, right? And you know, I've been esports for almost one decade, and I've really seen the rise of esports here in Southeast Asia, which has been really interesting to see because it's very different here compared to any other region in the West or even in North Asia, right? Like in China, Korea, it's really different uh, here in SEA. So today, I guess I'm here to really share a bit more insight on, you know, how SEA is really what's the landscape of esports here right now. Um, mm. You know, and two years ago, as I mentioned, you know, I started Team Flash. Uh, I raised some uh, money. I got some angel investors. I remember when I started the team, I literally had like just one player in Singapore and like $40,000 in the bank. And today, you know, we've raised the seed round of 1.5 million. That was last year in, in July. Uh, we won, we have won two world championships for Arena Valor last year as well. I think most people know Team Flash for that. Uh, even though AOV isn't really a big international eSport, in my opinion, because it's been talked about a lot as uh, Tencent's big mobile game last year. You know, there's been a lot of press, but like the real penetration, uh, you know, it has really been in the major Southeast Asia markets like Vietnam, Thailand, Taiwan. Um, so, so, so I think that, you know, you know, we've done a lot of good things in the past year and I'm really here to share more on, you know, what's coming up for Team Flash and esports in the region as a whole. Yeah. But we're also yeah. looking to uh, Series A that's coming up next year. So there's a lot of interesting projects that if I can share today, I would love to share. 
Yeah, awesome. Man, That I didn't know you were involved with MIM. That was a ma- – you just probably saw it on my face. That's a massive cast rate, 1.6 throwback to me. I remember watching <laughs> them play CS 1.6 so much, like, you know, basically when I was a kid, like like 10-plus years ago. Have MIM faded off into the distance? Do they still operate? Uh, what, what's happening? I don't think they're in operation anymore. So, like, they closed mm. a couple of years ago. Uh, when I worked for them, it was the Danish management. So, like, mm. uh, Mark Peter Price, um, who was that? A couple of the other guys. I don't think they're in esports anymore. Uh, and yeah. then taken over by Wicked Esports, which was a German esports organization. And those guys mm-hmm. are still doing something. They're actually running uh, this agency called Stark Esports, and they're doing pretty well. They have like yeah, a okay. lot of people in in Europe. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And thanks to everyone who's joining into the LinkedIn live stream as well. And obviously, this will be uploaded later as a podcast. For those of you who are listening in a podcast, that might explain why we're running off the cuff or replying to people in the chat. But it, I always like to talk about Terence. Like the, I feel like there was almost a golden year of esports. Thinking back to like 2008, like like you were talking about with teams like MIM, you had um, you know the cyber cyber athlete professional league who was giving tens of thousand dollars in prizes you had the championship gaming series in 2008 you know giving thirty thousand dollar salaries to eight plus counter-strike source teams with people like fatality commentating in arenas and such and then i guess maybe because of the global financial price crisis and a few other pressures it, it kind of waned off but like as big as esports was back then and as big as it is right now what are some of the main differences you see have people learned how to run better quality businesses and and why do you think that that some of the drop-off happened around that kind of 08 or the 10s kind of time? I mean, I think the ecosystem at that time was still really early. And even today, mm. most people, especially in our region, would say that esports is still really nascent. And and to me, back in the day, like uh, we weren't ready for a lot of the growth that we were seeing, right? Mm. So in terms of like, you know, MYM as an example, again, you know, they, they paid some of the best salaries in the market. I remember Grubby at the time, uh, the best Warcraft 3 player in the world. He was paid probably... Uh, yeah, a salary that most, most professional gamers wouldn't dream of, you know, even in most other, in other esports organizations as well. But mm-hmm. I think uh, the business model is really important. The underlying concept of how you're going to make money as an esports team. I think uh, most teams today, uh, you know, even in Southeast Asia, they don't look at that enough. So like most of them are doing it for other reasons, like um, they might do it for branding or, you know, it might be a, um, uh, a pet project even, you know, like not everybody is running the team, uh, the way that, you know, if, if you're putting in like full-time resources and effort, you know, there's a lot more you can do. And I think in Southeast Asia that there's a lot more that can be done. Uh, but back in the day, really, if I look at the changes and the landscape, I think uh, overall it's just the mindset as well. The mindset of how you want to build a professional team, um, the overall idea of uh, having a, a, a solid business model that's really important because at the, at the at that time, you know, most esports teams weren't making money. And today, I think it's the same as well. <laughs> mm. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. And I haven't thought about it like that before, that people just weren't ready for the growth. Um, and you see, like, the professionalism today versus back then. But there's there's one thing I definitely do miss from those days of esports where it was much less fragmented and not just because there were less titles but because there were forums. Forums were king. So you knew that if you wanted to get anything done in Counter-Strike, you went to hltv.org mm-hmm. and that's where everybody hung out. If you wanted yeah. to get anything done in StarCraft 2, you went to um, Team Liquid's forums. You knew that everybody hung out in there, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But now it's so hard with um, so many more 
Facebook groups, it's it's gone to a model where yes, you can reach more people, but it requires yeah. a lot more dollars in advertising. You need to pay influencers, you need to pay media like dot esports to get your stuff out there. You need to it's really pay for play these days. Whereas in the past, like if I was in Australia launching a Counter Strike tournament, I'd post on Got Games because I knew that every single Australian Counter Strike player had a forum account on Got Games and that's where you were going to get the word out. I, I do agree. I think a lot of the content has uh, you know the the the, the content landscape has kind of changed. So like in the past, there were a mm. lot of, um, you know, esports media websites that were dedicated to creating content. Today, there still, still is, like there's sites like the Esports Insider, Esports mm. Observer. Back in the day, it was very much like, like you said, you know, if you wanted to reach a certain community or a certain game community, like you, you would know where to go. So like back in the day, there was also Gosu Gamers, which right now I think they're still running, but, you know, right yeah. now, anybody doesn't do content anymore, you know? Mm. So everybody's getting their content from social media from twitter from facebook um it's become mm. a lot more i would say it's a lot more organic like it's a lot of user generated content as well you know um yeah, yeah and I don't, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing but it's just how the, the the industry has sort of evolved and how the fans are you know getting their content nowadays um i think this will keep changing mm. you know like i i think that there are some really good esports uh, media outlets that are doing great stuff like i mentioned esports observer i read them like every single day you know they, they do so many great feature stories on mm-hmm. the business of sports i think this content landscape will keep will keep evolving yeah <laughs> yeah goes to gamers that's another massive name and they had a big esports team as well and that's another name that i haven't heard of in a while so yeah, yeah. yeah you're definitely right yeah so <laughs> what'd you say sorry Rolling back the times. <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. It's like a trip down memory lane. And you mentioned Grubby as well. You know, for those people watching or listening, Grubby was like the esports star of the West for many years. You know, he was sticking it to the Chinese and Koreans in Warcraft 3 um, like no other Westerner was, really. He was just a massive household name and then, you know, unfortunately kind of fell off a bit. But still around today, you know, here is the Storm and Starcraft. You still see at follow Grubby everywhere you go and super nice guy. So, yeah, it's good to see you know you have that history and the support. So let's let's go back to the start of Team Flash. So you said you raised around forty k in the bank. You had one player. There's so many people who approach me, and I'm sure you all the time. I've just made an esports team with my mates. I want to scale and grow. You know, I want to put some of my own money into it, kind of thing. Can you go yeah. over like what some of the first steps were that you, that you went through? You've got forty k in the bank. You've got one player. How do you make a team out of that? How do you make a brand out of that? What do you do first? Man, so much things to look at, right? Like social media, business development, um, it's yeah. really everything, fundraising, you know, as you build the business, you've got to think about getting to the next round, getting more money in the bank. Obviously, mm-hmm. esports, as an esports team, you're not going to make money in the first two years, that's guaranteed, you know, uh, mm-hmm. honestly, like, unless you get a really good franchise league, uh, franchise league slot, but that only happens in the West because in Asia, there's not many franchise leagues at the moment, like only mm-hmm. for mobile esports. Um, but overall, yeah, I think, you know, when I started this company, you know, I just had the vision of, you know, making gamers heroes. That's our mm-hmm. vision, our tagline. And, you know, at the time I didn't even know I was going to expand to Vietnam at the time. So like, obviously mm-hmm. we knew that we wanted to go to Southeast Asia, but we didn't know what was the order of expansion. We didn't know whether it was going to be Thailand first, Vietnam first. I think it was okay. about which uh, opportunity came to us, um, at, at the time. So like. You know, we started in Singapore. Singapore is a really small market. I think anybody that knows esports and has come, been to our country, I recently one championship did a esports invitational uh, mm-hmm. in Singapore. You know, it was it was quite successful. But you know, back in the day, even two years ago when I started this team, it was one player. 
um, and 40k and you know, I really had to think about where to put how to make the money work for me you know because 40k isn't a lot of money <laughs> even mm. two years ago you know like at the time there's already what team liquid so many esports organizations and Southeast Asia was still like quite quite nascent there were not many good esports teams at the time but even then I knew that I was facing a big challenge you know I had to really think about what was my 12-month plan you know it's no point thinking of a five-year plan like you can do financial projections you can show investors like what it's going to be like in five years the business but um it's really difficult right now to project because esports is moving so fast and yeah. new things are coming up you know every quarter every month you know so it's really difficult to present a set of uh projections that are in line with the market you know? so, so for me it's really about focusing on milestones every three months, right? So like thinking about what I'm going to do this quarter, this quarter. At the time, it was easy because it was only me running the company. I had a couple of uh, partners. Like I had I had one guy who was doing just business development, you know, but I was really getting it off the ground, making sure we signed the right teams, getting the brand out there. Um, you know, from FIFA in Singapore, we expanded. We tried investing to Dota 2 in Malaysia. We, we started a full-time team. We, we started a game house, you know. And and it was really difficult. I remember like when we when we were working with that team, you know, the best position we got the entire year was like top eight in the major qualifiers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, for Southeast Asia and that was the best we got. And that was, that's like minimal brand awareness because you don't really get into the big leagues, right? You don't go to a mm-hmm. major, you don't go to a minor, you don't go to an offline event. So there's very little value that you can generate off that. So I started to look at different things uh around I think halfway in the year. And I realized, you know, mobile esports made a lot of sense. Yeah, so I started looking at mm. the other markets in the region. So Vietnam at the time, you know, really interesting market. I knew that they weren't really doing well in terms of monetization, but they had a lot of talent. Like Vietnam has been known as a region that has a lot of talent because with League of Legends, you've seen that Vietnamese teams are the best in the in the region, right? Mm. That's why they are a major region in uh, Riot Riot leagues. So so for me, I, like when I looked at um, the other markets, I saw Indonesia, I saw Thailand, I saw Vietnam. These are the three main target markets, in my opinion, for esports in Southeast Asia. Anybody that wants to do esports in this region will be looking at one of these three markets. Mm-hmm. So uh, at the time, we had an opportunity. So we went to Vietnam. We started a mobile gaming team. We actually took over existing local team. You know, they had no business operations, no infrastructure. Uh, it was just a team of five boys and one manager. Yeah, that's yeah. how esports, right? Like back in the yeah. day, it was. You so common, yeah. So common, yeah. yeah. And I spoke to this guy. I remember he was, he had, he, he had a quite a similar history like me. You know, he had over ten years of experience. He was a commentator. He had worked for Garena. And, um, uh, and I, I spoke to him and I told him, you know, I want you to be my local partner. And I want you to drive the brand up, uh, like, you know, like drive. We can go to the world championship. We can win stuff. You know, but that's like a one to two year plan because at the time the team was only third in Vietnam. And we had to really work with them to make sure that, you know, they they could actually perform first domestically and then go on to the world stage and do something there. So so I managed to take that team from third in Vietnam to first uh, the following season. Uh, the first season we acquired them, we actually placed third again. So we weren't the best by any means. But we managed to make a lot of changes over time. We managed to get the right players. We managed to build the right culture within the team. You know, we really wanted to have a team that, uh, you know, understood that, you know, ob- obviously winning is important. Mm-hmm. It's a competitive team, right? It's, uh, it's the foundation of our success. But at the same time, we wanted to make sure that that team uh, understood, like, you know, the values that we wanted to impart, like teamwork, you know, 
good communication, you know, conflict resolution is really important in the esports team because you're dealing with a bunch of, honestly, you're dealing with a bunch of teenagers, but they really have people that speak their language, you know, and it's not easy, right? Um, yeah. I was having a chat with uh, this director from Hollywood yesterday. He was telling me, you know, it's very similar to managing artists, you know, like in, in the US, you know, these boys or girls, like they're 18 years old, they're, they're basically young millennials. And it's not yeah. easy working with people like that, you know, they're still growing up and, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on a personal level to make sure yeah. they're sustainable professionally. <laughs> That's the best way I can put it. Yeah. So, so honestly, the first part of it was really getting the brand out there, signing the right team. And, you know, it's not even about signing that many teams. I think I'll take a good example as well from Europe, Australis. You know, they invested in the team uh, CSGO, you know, mm-hmm. and they built an amazing lineup. And it's been a successful lineup because they've won so many world championships. They've won so many titles. But it's only one yeah. game. And they are arguably like an international esports organization. They just IPO'd. And, and it's really amazing to see how we've won just one title. And obviously, the whole group, which IPO had also a League of Legends franchise as well in Oregon, in the European Championship. But at the same time, when you look at that, you think, you know, what's possible with just investing in one successful team, you know, yeah. and just yeah. creating content of that, building the brand of that, making them as mainstream as possible. Because at the end of the day, if you have five guys that are super successful, you know, it's better than having 30 guys in your organization that are like, mm. you know, tier two, tier three. You know, that's the situation right now in Southeast Asia. I think a lot of team organizations are figuring that out. Like, you know, a lot of that are rare to steer, you know, in terms of talent acquisition, building the brand. A lot of, some of them think it's just about getting players, you know, but that's not the case in my opinion. I think it's about getting the right team with the right values and then yeah. in the right way. Yeah, that's yeah, a lot. And there's a few other teams that have done similar, right? OG did the same thing. You know, they, they pick... And I'm a big fan of that model. There's another organization in Australia that did very well, which was Chiefs. You know, they became a League of Legends team. They won everything for three years, and then they're like, okay, now it's time to get into CSGO. And similar yeah. with OG with Dota 2, right? They're like, well, we've won two internationals. We've won a bunch of majors. Now it's time. We'll get into CSGO. Um, yeah. And there's been quite a few teams like that. I really like that because you can also pay enough attention. You know, there's an organization who I won't name who I've worked with a bit, but, you know, their strategy instead of having – the best team in any game was to have the fourth best team in every game. But it's so hard for them to keep up with everything. Even if you're thinking about monetary, obviously you're not paying them all salaries at all or much salaries. But even if you've got a peripheral sponsor, which I was at the time, every yeah. six months they're asking me for another 15K worth of peripherals. Like that adds up a lot for me as a sponsor. And then they churn because they're not looked after as well and they're not given yeah. as much. So when they are offered salaries, they'll leave, the next will come in. And then you can build a negative name for yourself because you're known as the team that can't hold a team or organization that can't hold a team. You're churning through them. So yeah. it's similar in business. And I've had this problem a lot myself in the past in esports. And I try to help a lot of other people who have the same where everything's so exciting. You're like, yeah, I want to be an agency and I want to be an influencer manager and I want to be an esports team and I want to run events. And you realize you don't do any of them well and you make no money. There was a great story I listened to in a book or a podcast about an, an app that got five, this is a very loose example, but it, it like 500% or 300% plus its revenue by deleting most of its features because there were just too many things going on the app. People weren't sure what it was for and they'd lose interest and lose track. When they dialed it down to be something very interesting, very simple to use, that's why it goes well. And I think that's why something like TikTok does very well because you know that when you go on TikTok, it does one thing. It does funny videos where people are doing things like dancing or comedy to sounds and there's going to be a lot of those and then you can just churn through that simplistic content. Whereas if you go to Facebook, it's people arguing there's groups there's people selling things there's ads coming at you all the time like there's so much different things going on 
right? Yeah. I think that's mm-hmm. great. Uh, ultimately, it's what people remember you by, what your brand means in, in the yeah. market. People always remember you by one one main message, right? So what mm-hmm. are you really known for? What, what, where you've made your name? So for us, I think most people know us today as the Vietnamese esports organization that won a world championship, you know? And yeah. if, you come, if you come to Vietnam today, you know, and ask around, you know, who's the best professional team? Or you ask around, you know, who do you know? Uh, in esports or gaming, you know, also was eighteen flash. You know, that's a fact. Mm. And you know, I've been to the street. I've been to like um, eating dinners just on restaurants, and then people are like coming up to our players. So like, we've created a real atmosphere within the country where people are proud of mm. their esports players. Yeah. And it's not, and and to touch on that too, it's not all about winning. Like if you take FaZe, for example, they don't have the best team in the world in anything right now. However, there's no way you couldn't call them the biggest or one of the biggest organizations in the world, but they're just known for content and being cool. So like you were saying, every time I talk to a new team, I always talk about what do you want to be known for? Do you want to be known for the best team? Do you want to be known for the best content? Do you want to be known for the best viral marketing? Like you can pick an angle, but you can't do everything because I think people so much in this industry try to do everything all the time Mm, so so speaking of like picking your place i want you to help me to understand more about southeast asia so everybody lumps it together right but there's so many different countries within southeast asia there's so many different languages different municipalities different laws and even different islands between each country so how do you go about tackling that kind of industry if you're supposed to be an expert on southeast asia you've got so much to pay attention to let alone all of the west or china or anywhere else in asia I think Southeast Asia, when people call it one region, it's actually 10 unique different countries. So like people have got to realize, that, you know, the culture and the language is really so different. And I often get asked this question, what if one day a big esports organization from the US, like Cloud9, Team Liquid, decides to come into Southeast Asia? Uh, Fnatic has made that move with a Dota team here. But I think really building a, a business in Southeast Asia is uniquely challenging because you've got to look at many different factors. Again, it's not just building a, a, a team, a successful roster. Got to look at local uh, compliance, government regulations. There's so much things to look at. You know, when you're building a business here, tax laws. There's so many things. You know, I I, I can't start. You know, but um, yeah. Overall, like you know, building a business here and especially an esports team, it's really about understanding the unique culture that the fans have here. That I think uh, a lot of people don't pay attention, pay enough attention to. Like me, I'm. Singaporean, and when I came into the Vietnam market, I, I made sure that the first thing uh, that I did was to respect the market. Yeah, mm-hmm. and really understand as much as possible, be as open as possible, because I knew that it was going to be a long ride. And I knew that, you know, in order to be successful, you know, I would really have to deep, deep in the Vietnamese culture, uh, not just in esports, but in like how Vietnamese people live, you know, how do they talk, how do they interact with each other. And that's really important because the next step mm-hmm. for esports to go further is to bring it to the mainstream, you know, bring it to the big screens, get more people knowing about it, get more, get more people talking about it, like, you know, how people talk about football. So like even non-football fans will know the biggest uh, football clubs, the best football players like Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi. But I think in esports, we've, we've, we've not reached that level of mainstream, obviously. You know, mm. a lot more people are talking about esports nowadays compared to the old days. Like most people actually know what esports is <laughs> compared to last time. I think last time it was really like, you know, what's esports? Is it gaming? Is it, is it you know, nobody has any idea what esports is. Um, and yeah. today is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, can you tell me about um, sort certain trends that might happen in parts of Southeast Asia that don't exist in others? Like you were mentioning before, you know, League of Legends is popular in some countries and not others. Um, obviously, Dota 2 is quite large in SEA, but I'm not sure if that's segmented per country. Are there some major differences between countries that people mightn't understand? 
Yeah, I think the popularity of different esports, like, um, you know, what's interesting to see is like, let me take Arena of Valor as an example, and then there's this other mm. game called Mobile Legends that's quite popular in Indonesia. Yeah. I think people have heard about it. Uh, so what you see is that in the country, in any country, it's obviously Asia, usually they, you know, it's very popular in one unique genre. So like in the, in the mobile game, mobile genre, you know, it would be AOB or Mobile Legends in a specific country. So like in Vietnam, you would say AOB would be the top title and then Mobile Legends would be nearly like non-existent. Like people would play it, but nobody would really talk about it. And it wouldn't, you know, the growth rates are not as high as compared to the top title. And then in Indonesia, it's the direct opposite because most people are playing and watching Mobile Legends. Nobody knows or cares about AOB, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the reverse. You know, you wouldn't see like a game in the same genre perform head to head. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's how I you know, you would see one title be dominant and the other title would nearly be almost non-existent. That's the truth, yeah, you know. Right. And with Dota and League of Legends, those were the early days of the mobile genre, you know. But mm. uh, with those games, I think uh, Dota was definitely the standout because League of Legends wasn't popular in Southeast Asia, in my opinion. Like, Vietnam was the only country where it had any traction, you know. And uh, But since mobile games have come out, you know, mobile esports has emerged, you know, PC titles have sort of taken the backseat. Like Dota is still quite popular, but I've seen that you know it, it's it's actually regressed a lot over the past year. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's interesting looking at those differences, and it and it follows. Uh, I talked to one of the PUBG mobile esports directors from Tencent, yeah. and they said something similar with um, battle royales. That basically, once one battle royale has control of a country, it's game over for every every other one. They basically don't exist, and that's exactly what you're saying about the mobas as well. And that was my question to lead up that I'm glad you already answered. So it seems like it's the same across all of these mobile titles where you don't see that as much in PC. You know, Dota 2 is quite popular in Australia and so is League of Legends and other countries in the West. But do you think that maybe it's it's more of a, I guess like a political term, like a swing voting kind of place that, that you've got with SEA? It's, it's all or nothing to one side or the other. Yeah, I think for being first to market is really important. And as a publisher, most publishers know this. Like they know they have, they've got to get their game out as soon as possible. You know, they've got to have a strong esports roadmap. Not just mm. a good development roadmap, right? It's one thing creating content for the main group, but if you want to create an esports ecosystem, it's entirely different, right? You've got to build mm. a league, community events, you've got to build a strong fan base, you've got to build strong content offline and online, um, you know? Mm. And when I look back at that, uh, some trends that I saw, so as a, as a mobile gaming user, you know, when I start playing a mobile game, I start investing a lot of money and time on it, right? So, you know, especially the money part, because I think you keep buying content, you don't want to move away from that mm. <laughs> because you've yeah. already invested, you know, and then a new mobile game comes in like three months later and you're like, okay, this is cool. Maybe you'll try it, you know, and unless it's really, really good to cut through that, all of that, you know, the, the likelihood is you're going to stick with the first game, you know, mm. because you've invested so much time and energy and you've unlocked all those skins, you've unlocked all those heroes, you know, most of these mobile games in Southeast Asia, it starts free to play, but a lot of the content has to be unlocked or purchased. So like, yeah, just look, okay. yeah. you know, you, you kind of understand why the fans are like, you know, very good to one specific title because they've invested a lot. Yeah, yeah that, and that brings me really well into my next question. So we, um, there's been some discussion on my LinkedIn post recently. I shared a post about Yuzu and trends to watch in esports, one of the main ones, obviously mobile gaming and esports is growing, but there was a lot of negativity and I found that really interesting in there and some misinformation. But one of the main points that I'd like you to clarify on that I don't have an answer for is what's the lifetime like for these mobile 
esports. Mm. Obviously, if you're looking at a game like Dota 2, I mean, that was beta in 2011 when they were running a million-dollar tournament. You're looking at League of Legends. You know, they just had their 10 years of league anniversary. How do you see these mobile games functioning? Are they going to be operating or have been operating for 10 years plus, or do people churn through them a little bit faster? Um, yeah, I've, I've been following that stream of negativity <laughs> online. Like I've been seeing a lot of it on Twitter, on LinkedIn. You know, a good friend of mine, Jeff Chow, as well, has been very vocal yeah. about um, He's a legend. You know, I've read articles. Yeah, great stuff, you know. I think he's done a lot of good research. You know, for me, you know, when I look at that trend, um, you know, like I'm thinking, you know, churn, you know, churn in terms of users. Definitely there's going to be churn over time, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't use any specific market data or numbers, but like, just looking at the trend, I think uh, overall, people, people, you know, when they play mobile games, you know, they actually, um, so can you repeat the last part of your question? I kind of like lost. Yeah, so mainly it's, mainly it's about what's the what's the expected lifetime of these mobile titles. We've seen League and Dota operating on a high-tier global esports scale for 10 years plus, but there's been a lot of concerns from people saying that mobile games don't have the same longevity. People don't stick to them as hard and they're churning through much more often. Have we seen any mobile titles that are already at three to five years plus with a, with a complete and proper ecosystem and that will reach 10 years? I think, you know, esports, you know, most people can agree that esports, uh, having a good esports strategy helps to extend the life cycle of the game, you know, mm, helps to sure. the community, the direct community of the game, of the gamers, and then bring in more additional fans. You know, people that were not playing the game necessarily might hear about your game and then start playing. Um, but overall, I'll say mobile esports in this region, like if you look at the top mobile titles, Arena, Valor, Mobile Legends, PUBG Mobile, you know, they're all still quite doing good doing quite well in the market you know in certain local markets it, it, might, it might have gone up might have gone down but overall you know you still hear about these titles they're still running i think the life cycle of most mobile games are quite short like usually you're not looking at more than a three-year life cycle so it, it is really short and arena of valor is coming to that three to four year cycle you know uh, mobile legends as well. so it's quite interesting to see you know after the first three years how this mobile esports do because success you know they're very successful you know in their respective local markets you know but mm. going forward can can they continue to maintain that success can they bring up to a new level uh there's a lot of questions that needs to be answered especially in terms of esport leagues because right now mm. a lot of these are not franchised you know and there's also a discussion on whether you know a franchise league right now you know whether we're ready for that because mm. in the u.s i know some of those franchise leagues aren't necessarily doing as well you know as we think they are you know, I haven't seen yeah. the actual financials because they've not posted that, they're not public. But just looking at that, you know, it's about doing the right thing at the right time and making sure that these mobile titles mm. can upload. You know, the publishers, obviously that's more on the publishers, but we as, as team owners, as fans, you know, we've got to realize that, you know, we all play an important part in keeping it alive and, mm. and you know, yeah, doing well. Yeah, and you, and you touched on something important twice. Um, what Once recently and once during that discussion was about setting up an ecosystem i think that a lot of people who don't understand about how to develop a strong esports title is a there needs to be a certain type of game to be considered an esport and for me i generally say that needs to be a high skill ceiling and easy entry level and a limited or controlled amount of randomness within the game um, but b you're really signing yourself up for a whole ecosystem if you look at what dota 2 does they've got eight majors and what is it eight eight minors a year that they're running yeah. around the world that they're funding with millions of dollars and then they've got a 30 plus million dollar tournament that happens once a year but their mm. 
back-end funding that. They're helping to market that, and they're running that tournament. If you look at League of Legends, they've got hundreds of staff all over the world whose full-time job it is to run esports. They've got paid commentators who are part-time in Australia. They've got full-time esports people. Even in Australia, we're such a minor region for them. There's still four to five people in Australia who are full-time working on esports just running their league. So you're really signing yourself up for something massive there. And then you've got to run your global tournaments, and they've got how many regions do they have? It's something like 15-plus that all feed into one giant global finals with millions of dollars of prize pool. They're paying back-end funding to all of these teams to help them to operate. So there's so much that needs to come into that. And we've been talking to a few clients about that recently. You know, they're like, how do I make my mobile game, my PC game, my whatever, an eSport? And I go, well, boy, well, this is a long conversation. It's great for me as an agent because it's a lot of good work that I can do and that's my passion, but it's expensive. And it takes a lot of time and it's not a guaranteed success. But you're signing yourself up, like you were saying, for a lot of work developing but then maintaining that ecosystem. Yeah, uh, I mean, that, that's great. I, I also recently had a consultation call on this new gaming developer that wanted to enter the mobile esports market. And I told them, like, you know, you're going to be in for the long haul. And, you, you, you know, it's a lot of investment over time, you know, because you're building up a community, you're building up a real league ecosystem. It's like running a different company with a different set of numbers, right? And it is a different mm-hmm. company end of the day because um, it's a lot of you got to look at you know localization you got to look at so many things yeah mm. and there's a good comment in the in the chat here from um jamie lewin who's someone that, that works at right saying that um, the mobile games with esports as part of the ecosystem do seem to have a longer life cycle which i agree with because you're keeping people in the ecosystem and the other really interesting thing too after talking to some people who make hyper casual games like like tap kind of games all they did was introduce an esports style thing into their game which was a leaderboard with the competition and they saw a 300 percent increase in both user re- user retainment and also money revenue generation per user for them over that period of time and it was literally just some sort of scoreboard where if you do a thing over seven days the highest person wins some free in-game currency or something like that so it shows that adding some sort of interactivity in competition does help a lot um, but, you know, it, that's definitely not esports. Uh, putting up a leaderboard is a lot less than hiring full-time commentators, you know, getting uh, Mineski to run your, you know, million-dollar esports tournament and things like that yeah. too. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of different money. So let's, let's talk a little bit about revenue streams. So that's something that I went on a bit of a tirade with last year. I was sick of esports teams coming to me without a single salesperson asking for me to do their job for them without paying me. I was sick of teams only focusing on 12-month sponsorships like traditional esports teams and such. And then we've seen the meteoric rise with things like 100 Thieves and Faze doing well in merchandise, doing well in content production. I've seen that you guys have just signed on a brand new airline, which is awesome. That's one of the first ever airline sponsors of a team in esports. There's a very small handful of those. So I'd love to learn from you... um, about your current revenue lines and how you may differ from the norm of just a 12-month sponsorship and what are you looking at in the future to generate money for your company as you're looking to do your Series A? Yeah, uh, I think the 12-month model that you mentioned, the 12-month sponsorship program, you know, it's not necessarily bad, but I think it's like, you know, how you want to really craft that according to your organization's capabilities. Uh, yeah. So, like, it really depends, you know, for us, when we signed Vietjet, it was... Uh, Obviously, it's a really good deal, and you know it's the f- one of the first airline partnerships in the region. I think the first was Air Asia in two thousand and eight. Mm. They came into the market. They started by sponsoring a team and then investing to the team. Mm. Uh, we did the Vietjet deal just last year, and you know that deal has really shifted in terms uh, our perspective on what we can do in terms of sponsorship numbers because it's our first uh, six figure sponsorship uh, across a year. You know, it's a huge deal and it's a really big deal in terms of Vietnam as well because I should mention that in the Vietnam esports market, no team has managed to do uh, six figures. 
and five-figure deals are even hard to come by, even for mm-hmm. a twelve-month program. That kind of tells yeah. you where the of the market is right now in terms of revenue generation. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I said, I think esports monetization is still really early, you know. Uh, but looking at the trends overall for esports team in Southeast Asia, and uh, you know the main revenue generators right now would be sponsorship and streaming. So sponsorship in terms of different categories. So we've signed up an airlines partner. We have a gaming gear partner in Logitech, which is a very familiar name in the esports industry. They've been supporting for a long time. You know we're mm-hmm. trying to enter uh, the non-endemics. You know that's what everybody in esports will tell you nowadays in terms of tapping to the real sponsorship dollars, going for the non-endemics. You know the FMCG brands, the car brands, the insurance, mm-hmm. finance brands. You know those are all tar- all target categories that we have looked at. You know mm-hmm. in every. And, and it's really a long game because the first part is really education, you know. You know, uh, like Jamie, you know, I, I'm close friends with Jamie and Jamie knows that, you know, talking to these brands is not easy because it's also handling that for Riot. And uh, it's really about getting them to understand first the landscape of where esports is at, what it really is, you know, how you can use it to uh, provide more value to your to your company, to your marketing strategies. Um, and for us, like looking at the entire strategy, you know, we, we know that the 12-month program is a very... It's, it's a norm in any esports team, right? But then looking mm. forward, how do we generate more daily recurring revenue? I think that's the question because it's um, it's very seasonal, like sponsorship. Mm. sponsorship, you need to find other ways of generating revenue, and that's not easy, right? Uh, so mm. we're looking at different business lines. We're, lo- we're looking at potentially setting up a F&B business, you know, using the main brand. So like it's really about mm. using esports teams as a launch pad for something bigger, building yeah. more products building more businesses i read an article on the esports observer yesterday talking about the one billion valuation game for esports teams a mm. really good article. and there was a part in an article that mentioned you know specifically esports teams nowadays are being used as a launch pad for other businesses so one of the most popular business lines would be a mcn model a multi-channel network so building like a a, a, a team of streamers content creators putting it under your brand you know they're not necessarily competitive athletes but they are here to also create content, make the brand more popular. So like Face Clan, 100 Thieves are the best examples in the US. Mm. Uh, they are doing that. So for us as an esports organization, sponsorship makes up almost like 30 to 40% of our annual income. And then streaming, maybe about another 30%. The remaining 30% really comes comes down to price money, merchandising, other other revenues. You know, uh, Streaming mm. in particular is quite significant in our region because even when I started the team, uh, in 2017, I remember like six months later, we signed a six-figure deal with Nemo TV, which is a really well uh, broadcasting platform in Southeast Asia, but actually it's a spin-off from Huya in China. So it's under the same company. And then we, we, we just signed a contract with Facebook Gaming a few months ago, which has also uh, increased our, our revenue significantly coming to the new year. Yeah. yeah, that leads perfectly into the next conversation, actually, which is the real dominance and prominence of Facebook in Southeast Asia, whereas yeah. in gaming and esports, where essentially it doesn't exist in any other country in the world. Yeah, um, that's true. I mean, like, the, mm. the main broadcast platforms for esports today, like YouTube, Facebook, in Vietnam, is definitely those two. Uh, mm. Nemo has dropped off a bit. You know, they came into the market really, really strong. They came in with really big contracts for pro players or teams that has really helped the market at a point of time in terms of giving them the money to even stay afloat because most mm-hmm. teams today obviously they are just trying to survive they're not making money right yeah. and Nemo really helped uh, that help help us as well in 2018 because honestly we were struggling at that time to make revenue and mm-hmm. and uh, you know it was really good at the came to the market but i think they've sort of dropped off like they haven't really found a sustainable business model 
uh, after acquiring a top player, top streamer, they've had to let most of them go after the first year. So like mm-hmm. for, for platforms as well, uh, you know, what is the long term business model? That everybody comes down to that how they're going to make money. Uh, mm. They, they might not make money now. They might spend a lot of money to get market share to acquire the best players. But you know, what's the long term plan? And it's the same for any business in these sports. Yeah. Yeah, I always wonder about those streaming deals. It's really interesting. Um, you know, we're in, we're in contact with a lot of influencers around the world that has various various offers from, you know, Twitch to Facebook to to Caffeine to Mixer, whoever else, um, yeah. for seemingly ridiculous amounts of money, but. The interesting thing to me always that I go back to them and say, what support are they providing you after they sign you on? Because you've seen um, the reports around Shroud had like an 80% drop in viewership, I think, going to Mixer. Um, And similar with Disguised Totes now, he's on Facebook. He's had a similar 50-plus percent drop in viewership and such. So while that payment might be good in the short term because a lot of these people I know are getting offered a one-year deal of of X amount um, over the year that's paid monthly, my question to them is what support are they providing you like if i was to sign to facebook as a creator let's say they wanted to pay me 200k usd to sign i would also yeah. be asking for a 200k marketing budget that i had full control over that i could mm. either pump google ads that i could pump into facebook ads if nothing yeah. else facebook ads because they surely they can buy ads off themselves for cheaper so it's <laughs> easier for them to funnel through the same way yeah. that back in the day when i was at thermal take and i had you know sweet f all money for marketing I would be able to buy. I would be able to use my money to buy thermal take products internally to supply to people, and that was a cost-effective way of supporting land parties and that kind of stuff. Because it's not retail; we buy it at cost price off ourselves internally to market, and that's what I always think is interesting. But why, for, for you, can you list a couple of reasons as to why Facebook is so prominent across all of Southeast Asia? Um, you know, I know that Facebook isn't as popular in the West. So, like when I study the 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 mm. fan data most esports organizations in the US, in Europe, you know, Facebook is not their main uh, marketing channel to the fans. You know, it's mostly Twitter, a bit of YouTube content, but I would say Twitter is the main social media medium that most esports teams use today. Um, but in Southeast Asia, it's the opposite, right? So the social media trend as well is quite different for the fans. Uh, Facebook is the number one platform in Vietnam, not just for esports, but for anything. You know, yeah. everybody facebook and you know the facebook gaming program i think they've reported that vietnam is the number one perform performance market in terms of just number of hours watched viewed streamed um yeah and and in vietnam i think when we looked at streaming partnerships you know moving from nemo to facebook was quite a logical uh switch because facebook offers a lot more than just uh the the contracts right the exclusive uh streaming fees they're looking at offering you inventory at inventory that you can mm. use you know, they, they they have a certain algorithm as well that they use to boost up their sign creators. So, like, if you're a sign creator, because there are also a lot of people streaming on the platform. It's like Twitch, right? It's like an open platform. Anybody can stream. You and I can stream yeah. today. The same thing. But as a sign creator, you get so much more benefits in terms of visibility. And mm. that's really important because you want to build your brand. And in a market like Vietnam, right, Facebook is the number one social media channel. It made a lot of sense to just go into that market as a creator, as a professional team that wanted to build our popularity. Yeah. And, mm. you know, it was really a logical step for us. And monetization aside, you know, we do like Facebook's long-term plan of, uh, you know, uh, where, where they want to hit in terms of gaming content creation, how they want to monetize for themselves, for the creators. I think it's a lot more sustainable uh, compared to most of the platforms. Obviously, Twitch has done the best mm. uh, worldwide, but I think they've seen a lot of competition, especially in the second half of last year. So, like, Mixer is mm. the big name came in and soaked for their biggest names like Ninja, Shroud, you know, and 
you know, in Southeast Asia, it's really all, all Facebook right now, in my opinion. Yeah. But it's quite interesting because I saw YouTube is coming into the market as well, but I haven't actually spoken to them six months ago, but I'm quite interested to see what's their long-term plan, how fast their role is going to be. Because when I first met them, YouTube, the YouTube gaming team, the global team, they, they told me they were not interested in buying content because they felt that their ecosystem was strong enough and people were creating enough content and their value proposition was not live streaming, it was VODs, right? It's creating mm. content on YouTube channel, building, building that library of content that people can keep viewing and viewing over time. Live stream content is a bit different and uh, YouTube wasn't a big player in that space, but that seems to have changed recently. Like I've seen them signing some big creators and there has to be big fees mm. because those creators were previously signed to other platforms. Yeah, yeah, like Courage JD and such. Yeah, and and YouTube seems to me to be such an interesting proposition with your static videos as well as your live videos because they can do things like put you on trending um, and boost mm-hmm. you in the algorithm that can help you get to a million subscribers. And we know yeah. that once you get to a million subscribers, you know you could um, with high earnings potential up to five hundred k a year. You could be earning. So that's that's a great amount. And, you know, just by providing that support for the minimum guarantee of, you know, maybe they ask you to stream 30 hours a month or something like that. Who knows? And that's that's pretty common with some of these these kind of deals. But, yeah, definitely a lot of opportunity. So so for you, um, you know, a lot of this um, stream and podcast, we've talked about mobile, talked about SEA, we've talked about um, your diversification to these non-endemic mainstream sponsors now uh, with Vietjet, et cetera. Um, besides, besides that, what, what else do you have coming up over the next 12 months? You mentioned a Series A and, and what else are you working on? Uh, you know, I'll try and say as much as I can. Um, you know, for us, it's really about taking the team from just being a purely competitively winning team because a lot of people look at Team Flash today and they recognize us, recognize us as world champions uh, mm-hmm. of esports or arena of battle, right? But esports is mm-hmm. huge. There's so many titles right now. So being world champion of AOV is not as big as being world champion of League of Legends. And it mm-hmm. takes a lot more to get there, right? But we've, but we've definitely done yeah. a lot in terms of just establishing the brand, at least in Vietnam. And within Southeast Asia, most people know about us. I think the next step is to take us from a team that's known in Southeast Asia to a team that's known internationally. And a lot of things have to happen for that to happen, right? Uh, But for us, the main thing would be cementing our market position in Vietnam, specifically because, you know, I really like this country. I really like the passion of the fans here. You know, I've been to the eSports stadiums and, you know, the fans are amazing. You know, some of the best fans I've seen in the world. Uh, I've been to events in and out of Asia. So like that's that's a big testament as well to, to in terms of how big the fan base, how strong they are, how much they support their local heroes. Uh Vietnam football as well is a good example because moving a bit to traditional sports, you know, I mm. followed the rise of Vietnam football over the last one year and um you know the it's crazy. Like people are so patriotic and so passionate about uh, their national heroes. And that's really important when you're looking to establish an esports team as well. You want to sign good players but it's in that you want to make sure the fans get behind them. You know, and that doesn't happen in every country in Southeast Asia. In Singapore, you know, it's really difficult. I remember we won like two Asian championships for FIFA Online 4. Uh, and, you know, we, you know, there, there was like a bit of talk on the media. I did a press mm-hmm. release, I sent it out, we went on TV. Uh, you know, a week later, nobody remembers. So that's a bit hard, you know, like countries like that. The fan culture isn't necessarily developed for certain reasons. People aren't just as passionate, you know. So in Vietnam, it's, it's really... It's really, really developed and we want to really uh, leverage off that, right? As a business, you know, we really want to, you know, pay attention to our fans. And that also means creating great products for them. So like merchandising is a great uh, revenue stream and also something mm-hmm. we've looked at. You know, we have our own dedicated merchandising department. We want to really go deep into that this year, you know, and it's part of also uh, 
you know, uh, bringing us more into the mainstream, making us more a lifestyle brand, like 100 Thieves, you know. I, I think everybody has looked at the model and think like, you know, I want to be like that. But like, we also want to, we also want to grow the brand a different way. And that's why I mentioned, like, for example, the F&B market here in Vietnam is really, really big. And I don't think many esports teams have looked at that, you know, as a potential revenue generator. But it's something that we think that, you know, creates more brand affinity. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, people are consuming our products. They create, they have more connection to the brand. They have more connection yep. to Flash. And that's something that we want to do as well, uh, F&B projects. And then lastly, we're also looking at building an a esports training facility in mm-hmm. Ho Chi Minh City. Yeah, so actually right now we do have a facility in partnership with the Singapore Sports Hub, but that's in Singapore. In Vietnam, we have two two to three gaming houses set up for our different teams. But okay. next, next year is actually the year where we want to centralize everything. We want to build a dedicated esports training facility for, for elite athlete training, for streaming content creation. But more than that, we want to build something integrated. So everything that I mentioned earlier, like merchandising, F&B, everything is going to be integrated within this facility. And that's part of our mm-hmm. fundraising. Yeah. Yeah, a lot going on. So you mentioned you have a Series A coming up. Can you are, are you able to mention at this time how much you're raising and what sort of investors you're looking for? Um, I mean, for us, we are looking at you know five to seven, eight million. You know, that would be the targeted round size. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for us, in terms of looking for investors, you know, I've always tried to look for people that can add a lot of value outside of money. Uh, anybody would say that. So any smart entrepreneur building a business would say that. So you want to look for mm-hmm. investors can add a lot of value open doors but i think uh you know being less conceptual about that i think uh, we're looking for people that you know are strong in entertainment uh you know I, I i mentioned that i met you know this guy yesterday he's a really famous director from hollywood he's moved to vietnam he started his own production company he has so much things that any sports team like us could use you know we could also use his experience he has over 60 years of experience you know working yeah. with me celebrities artists you can give us so much more than just money and that's mm-hmm. the kind of investor that you know i like to look at because you know they, they really give you a perspective on how to shape the business as well and potential potential uh new business lines that you can build uh in the future maybe not now but with future fundraisers because most esports teams are raising uh keep raising you know just to stay afloat and it's not easy yeah yeah, yeah, for sure. And for anyone who might want to get in contact with you, whether they're an investor or whether they're interested in following your journey, where can they find you online? Uh, you know, I'll leave my email address here. It's uh, Terence, T-E-R-E-N-C-E, at teamflash.gg. Uh, you can just drop me a note or just connect me on LinkedIn as well. I think uh, this one's on LinkedIn Live, so like just, yep. just add me on LinkedIn and, you know, we can chat yeah, I'm, I'm also happy to have a chat on uh, anything esports, like not just investor or business related. But if you just want to know more about Southeast Asia or what's happening in specific countries or anything at all, uh, feel free to drop me a line as well. I'm happy to chat. Fantastic. Thanks for joining us today, mate. And, and thanks to everyone for watching into LinkedIn Live. Some awesome names we see coming back and we've seen some great growth here. Um, kind of, what would you call it? Stream on stream growth, I guess, we've, we've experienced here throughout doing these last podcasts. So awesome to see uh, Kwesi Hayford back again, Troy Linforth, Shaggery Rayner, one of our investor panels here too. Um, awesome to, to see for the first time in here, Jamie, also um, Benson from Riot commenting and so many other people coming in. So thanks for joining us today, Terrence. Thank you for everyone who's watching. We'll have plenty more of these. Thanks, thanks for coming Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. 